Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas to you. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 19 is where we're at this morning. Luke chapter 19. In just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 to verse 27. If it is a help to you, page 743 in our seat Bibles there beneath you or in front of you. I do want to remind you that this evening is our monthly prayer service. This is the time we have chosen to set aside to pray together as a congregation, simply doing what we've been taught through Christ's holy word. So everyone invited, it begins at 6, it ends somewhere around 10 after 7, and there's always um, coffee or drinks and sweets and conversation afterwards. So we'd hope to see a great number of you here this evening at 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord together, beginning in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went into a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minyas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your minya has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minya has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minya. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I do not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his minya away from him and give it to the one who has ten minyas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. If you would just sit there and I will pray and ask God for his much needed help this morning as we look at this difficult parable. Let's bow together. Our God and Father, as we enjoy the precious words that we have just sung and the stillness, Father, of this moment, we ask that as you are God, that you would turn our hearts to Jesus Christ, that we would consider the reality of his resurrection, 
the certainty of his kingship, the wonder of his atoning death. So we pray for your help as we turn to your word that the Spirit of God would teach us and equip us with everything good for doing your will, Father. We pray this humbly, expectantly, certainly needily, for Christ's sake and in his name, amen. So I have a question this morning that will be the basis of much of what we speak about this morning. What are you doing for the rest of your life? You only have so much time granted to you. Because of that, the question becomes necessary and the question becomes weighty. What are you doing with the rest of your life? If you're here and you're somewhere around 30 years of age and things go well for you, on average, you only have roughly 23 million minutes left to live. If you're here and you're around 40 and things go well, you only have about 18 million minutes left to live. If you're 50 or thereabouts, 13 minute, million minutes to live. If you're just over 60 and you're here this morning, you only have 18 million minutes left to live. To put that in perspective, there's only about 14,000 minutes till Christmas. So the clock is ticking. What are you doing for the rest of your life? If you live in a world that has an answer to that question, it is a relentless answer. For the God of this world, the evil one gives the answer. And so he is prepared to bombard you with messages of excessive amounts to tell you what to do with those few remaining minutes. So he heaps on us unhealthy amounts of personal happiness, personal fulfillment, personal hobbies, personal pleasure, personal routines that we strike to or stick to that would, that would soothe us, but only temporarily. So we run after personal peace or we run after wealth that gives us feelings and only feelings of security so that now we have opportunities to reposition our place in life where nobody can bug us and nobody can tell us what to do. Now those are the messages that shell us day in and day out as we would seek and would seek to serve as a foundation for why we do what we do. But again, I would ask you in light of the words that we've read from Jesus and the warning that is clearly there this morning, what are you doing with the rest of your life? Are you living only for the moment? Are you living only in the moment? Is your life increasingly being managed by cultural maxims or a calendar that is telling you what to do, where to go, what to feel at certain times of the year or at certain seasons of your life? What are you doing with the rest of your life? I want you to think with me for a moment because this question is a pastoral question. As a pastor, I've been entrusted with the large task of preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. And this is not easy. Paul tells Timothy about this, reading from 1 Timothy, and the presence of God in Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing, I give you, Timothy, pastor, this charge. Preach the word. In other words, because Jesus Christ is coming, because he's watching me, because he's going to inspect me, because he's going to judge all people, preach the whole counsel of God. Therefore, a good shepherd would tell the sheep everything because he's been told to tell everything and hopefully because he loves the sheep. In fact, the fullest expression that I know that a shepherd would say that he loves the sheep is to behold nothing back from God's word, and not just rub up your backs or try to be your best friend. 
He loves them. So he tells them everything, including things that may strike us as weird at this point in the 21st century, things that are possibly unconventional, strange, may seem legalistic or unnecessary. But the question remains, what are you doing with the rest of your life? It's a pastoral question, but it's also a theological question. Why? Well, the Bible tells us that the life we have is limited and the life we have is granted. And because we are made in the image of God, being fashioned by a creator God whose very essence is love, the life that we have is significant. And since your significance and your life does not exclusively belong to you, so much so that what we have has been entrusted to us, we can't just fiddle our life away. We can't lay low. We can't sit out. We can't hide out. You cannot be ruled by self-will or with can be conservative with the things that we have been granted with. And you cannot think you can live, live for God any way you like, feel like, or even think is right. And if we ask the question, why are those things true? We could go to a number of scriptures for the answers. Just let me say a few. Colossians 1.16, all things were made by Christ and all things were made for Christ. We could say 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Christ's love compels us. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We could say 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare to announce publicly the praise of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. 1 John 5, 3. This is love for God. This is love for God that we obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. But this morning we could add to all that in light of what Jesus has said in this parable, these things are true because there's a king and his name is Christ. Though he will tarry, he will return. He has portioned to his own a single gift as is described in this parable, a particular gift to all in the same measure. Question, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but still question, what could that gift be? Answer, the gift is the message of the gospel. Why? Answer, Beyond the context, we should know that the gospel is the only gift we have as Christians in the same equal measure. Other gifts we have have been portioned out by type and been given out by measure per the Holy Spirit. The gospel, however, is what all Christians have in the same measure. And since Christ has given this gift to his own, And since he is king, and since his kingdom is forever, and since his kingdom, and we thank God for this, will swallow up all the kingdoms of the world. Christ has the right and Christ has the might to break into everything that would mark our days. And if your view of Christ is limited to he's there for you, he's your friend, he makes life better, he makes life bearable, he fixed things, and he makes things as we would like. If that is our view of Christ, it is far, far too low. He has the right and the might to do all those things, but that is half right, which makes it completely wrong. For Christ, who loves us profoundly, who is wiser than you and I, wants us to get it right. So in this profound and bottomless love, he has said what to do, and what not to do until he returns. 
Much of it is weighed by principle. He tells us if we're going to follow him, this is what he would have us to do. And he says, those of us who must come to him, this is the warning you should know because I am returning. Now listen carefully. As Christ was resurrected, as he was ascended into heaven, he will return from heaven. It's going to be a while. It's going to tarry. The Lord Jesus Christ calls his followers in the meantime to make the most of every opportunity to put the work what he has given us in his service. And since Christ will judge the living and the dead, somewhere along the journey of our life, our heads need to be rattled possibly so that we can understand that in the measure that we have the gospel now, And the measure that we've been entrusted with now, all the same, there are eternal ramifications. What we do with the gospel now on earth will mark our then in heaven. Now, a great number of people have said a great number of things about these. Let me just rattle off a few. There's a book called by John Stott, Our Guilty Silence. There's another book called Walk Across the Room about personal evangelism. Robert Murray McShane, who died at 29 for the sake of the gospel, said, it's not much speaking that's needed, but much faith that's needed. J.I. Packer says, pride is our problem when it comes to personal evangelism. Don Dixon says, we won't take any hits for Jesus anymore. Jonathan Edwards, this is the 18th century. He says, our hearts have to be broken enough for the lost. And then he says, we need to pray. And then someone says, John, what should we pray? And he says, pray that God will halt all opposition to the gospel, wherever it may lie. Pray that God will bring conviction of sin on sinners and that God will build this church and that God will grant a season, a long season of mercy to see unbelieving people become converted followers of Jesus Christ. Those are my words, not his. St. Care Ferguson says, Father, make me willing, willing to be plowed and cut Disturb my weed-infested heart. Show me as, as yet my unimagined need. Lead me to see Christ as not only sin-bearer and Savior, but a master that demands my all. Now, is that not helpful? I mean, we do want to find out what we're supposed to do. I mean, we don't want to find out what we're supposed to do only at the judgment, do we? So in this parable, we learn this Sunday, and and we're going to take time next Sunday to still go over this parable. What you see there is some servants get more cities than others. They are rewarded on the basis of what they have done with what they have been granted. Meaning what? Meaning heaven will not be the same for all of us in Christ this morning. Nobody will be disappointed when they get to heaven. But everyone in heaven will not receive the same. And some will reach heaven, a la 1 Corinthians 3, only as those escaping through the fire. Who are those people? Who are going to enter heaven only escaping through the fire? Well, at best, they're like the wicked servant in this parable who sits on what they have been entrusted with, a conservative in gospel things. At worst, they are a nominal Christian, a Christian who's a Christian in name only, who actually, verse 14, hates Christ's kingly rule. They would never say it, but their lives just display it as they are determined to call all their shots in all things. So the question then comes up again. Since all these things are true, what are you doing with the rest of your life? It's a pastoral question. It's a theological question, but it's also a very, very practical question. And here's why. At this point in human history, 
Common grace from God has granted us amazing liberties. Common grace that comes by way of God's provision is abounding in our context right now. The quality of life for most of us here is super. The insurance actuary tables tell us that even though we only have so many minutes, those minutes are kind of extending year by year. In other words, since we have more liberties, we have more provision, we have more strength, more means, more access, more of most everything than ever before in all of human history, having been entrusted from God with so much, all of it is kind, all of it is gracious, all of it is glad to receive it. None of these things are bad gifts. We enjoy them and hopefully we thank God for them. But having been entrusted with so much, the question there here before us is still a large and looming question. What are we doing with the rest of your life? Now, I'm not asking you if you're busy. Most of you this morning are fairly busy people, but our busyness could simply be a mask to uncover how we think of ourselves and our heart of hearts. So we keep busy doing all kinds of things because we see ourselves as less than irrelevant. So our busyness may serve as a mask, a a medicine, a placebo for our sick and confused soul. So I'm not asking how busy you are. But I'm also not asking you, or I'm not trying to amp you up for Jesus Christ to cure your boredom. For it is possible in a congregation like ours, some of us may not have to deal with busyness as much as boredom. You may have worked very hard, and you may be working very hard to get all your ducks in a row, but life goes on quick as a wink. You get what you want. You feed the monster. The result, boredom. And perhaps if you're prepared to be very, very honest this morning, nothing of life makes too much sense to you now. You're just doing things day and night, night and day. Monday, you wait for Tuesday, and Tuesday, you're waiting for Wednesday, and Wednesday is like, oh, great, here comes the weekend. It's almost here. You go and come and come and go, but in your quiet moments, if you were honest and someone tapped you on the shoulder and asked the question, what are you doing with the rest of your life? You might answer, oh, nothing really. I'm just kind of killing time. I'm just kind of waiting for the next calendar event. I'm waiting for my kids to grow up, come by, move out. I'm waiting to turn 62. I'm waiting to take a trip. I'm waiting to buy a new one of those. I'm waiting to buy a used one of those. What are you doing with the rest of your life? And does it bring a prospect of future eternal glory? And is it large enough to pass with you through death? And that is the question. I know it was a very long introduction, but that is the question I would have you keep before you as we work through these verses this morning. Now, first of all, I want you to notice the context there that begins in verse 11. Verse 11a, if your Bibles are open, says, as they were listening to this. What is the this they were listening to? The this was that Zacchaeus, remember him, our tax collector friend, was called and converted by Christ's mighty power. Christ said that he was a seeker and the savior of the lost. He's not a liar. He sought out Zacchaeus and and the least likely prospect of the city. Get that in our heads. The last person in all of Jericho that you would have thought that Jesus would have sought and saved. The last person who you might have thought could be saved. And the signs of his conversion all over the place. Least likely all or least of all Christ's words. Verse 9 
today salvation is coming to this house. And then Zacchaeus himself, verse 8, identifies that his saving as he suddenly is made to willing, made willing to part with all that used to mark his old life. In other words, he's a changed man. He's in love with Jesus. And this is what it means to be loved with Jesus. You lose stuff that doesn't matter to you anymore. And now he's doing what he never dreamed of. Only minutes ago in his life. Verse 8, he's acting like a four-year-old. Look, Lord, look. In other words, I want to make you happy. I want you to look at me, Lord. This will make you happy. Because it was the happiest moment in my life when I came to you. And when you saved me. And this is what it means to be changed by Jesus Christ. It's not that you're taking an old lifestyle and replacing it with a new lifestyle. It's not that you went from being irreligious to religious. It's not that that now Zacchaeus is on the plus side of all these external activities so that he commits himself like the Dickens, enslaving himself like some kind of religious zealot. But now he knows and he feels that he's a true son. Now he is in Christ. And now Christ is in him. Now what is that supposed to look like and feel like? Well, I'll give you two scriptures. John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, you ready? Will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 7, 38. Jesus again. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. This is Zacchaeus. He's got light in his soul and he's got streams of living water just oozing out. That's why he can leave half his stuff and put it away and that's why he can make restitution. Now, this week I came across, I think a helpful quote from J.I. Packard about what it actually means to be converted and this is what he says. We not only receive a pardon from our past sins, we enroll ourselves as Christ's disciple. Doesn't that sound like Zacchaeus? We commit ourselves to following his lead wherever it takes us. And we enter into a new life of permanent union and communion with him. And his father becomes our father too by means of us, of him adopting us into his family. Such is the difference that a genuine faith makes. So if you're Zacchaeus and you said, hey, Zacchaeus, or we were to ask Zacchaeus, hey, Zacchaeus, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? His answer in some measure would be in line with what the good servants in the parable Jesus is telling his listeners would do. So verse A, 11A, excuse me, verse 11A, while they were listening to this, while they were listening to his conversion, Luke goes on to say, verse 11b, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. It's the same old problem again. So then not only do we have a context for that parable, now we have a setting. A clear meaning of conversion in Zacchaeus. We have a misunderstanding of the coming kingdom and the people listening to him. Consequently, Jesus' listeners have a flawed view of his kingdom. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have a flawed view of God's kingdom, of what it means to actually be a Christian. They have to learn that Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to establish an earthly kingdom. He's going to go to Jerusalem to die on a cross. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem to die on a cross? So that men and women and young people can be brought into his eternal kingdom. Because if he doesn't go, we can't go. Equally to follow, Jesus 
to follow Jesus doesn't involve gaining the world. That's what these people need to understand. It actually means carrying a cross. It means production. It means hard and happy work. It means there's a delay before the king comes back. In the meantime, the king who now rules this world by providence will one day rule this world from a sovereign, visible throne. It's just not today. And so the people and the disciples are confused. They have not worked out what it means that the kingdom will come. They still fall foul of the idea that the kingdom of God is going to come on earth in a single earth-shattering moment. And just listen carefully. Now Jesus is only 17 miles from Jerusalem. He's 15 miles away if you conclude the precinct of Bethany in Jerusalem. So what's happening? Well, the crowds are growing. The buzz is growing. Palm branches are being cut. People are thinking this is it. Finally, someone to conquer our enemies. Finally, the disciples are thinking, finally, I'll get my place in leadership. Finally, the life that I always dreamed of. Finally, Jesus will come and take his throne on earth. Finally, things will be the way we always thought they should be. Finally, our enemies won't be saved, but they'll be conquered. But of course, that doesn't happen that way. The disciples will finally get it. They'll see that the coming of Christ was for the saving of all humanity. And that saving always comes by way of a cross. And it is preached by the disciples. Don't miss that. Now, this is a parable. And when we come to parables, they get us in trouble sometimes. So I'm going to do this purposely. I just want to review briefly what we've already know about parables. When we come to a parable, what have we learned? Well, the first thing we know is they're not easy to understand. The second thing we learn is that there's one central theme. There's one theme that Jesus wants us to know here. So then everything in the parable is not to be sifted out or stand alone. That's when you get in trouble when you do that. But we know that parables themselves, while not to be sifted, are like sifters. Now listen carefully. The parables, as we hear them, put us on the good side with my apologies to people on this side, on the good side or the bad side of the line, depending how you hear them. Now listen carefully. You may not understand this parable because you may not belong to Jesus Christ. Now you can't just say those things without having some authority. I want you to listen carefully to the words of Jesus after he had just told a parable, the parable of the sower. And listen to what he says. Those seen... They may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. He's addressing his disciples. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may ever be seen, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now stay with me. Jesus says the parable of the sower. He gives no explanation. The disciples say, we don't understand what this parable means. Why do they say that? They say that because they don't want to find themselves as ones who don't understand, don't see, don't perceive, so they will not, will not turn and be forgiven. They want those things. So they fess up and say, you know what? I don't know what this parable means. So what does Jesus do? He then begins to explain the parable so that we would owe what he means. 
Meaning what? Now listen carefully because here Jesus does not explain the parable to any of us. So how are we going to understand it? Well, we're going to do what we just did. We're going to take the long and maybe boring road to find out what was happening before, keep our eye on what's happening after, that is Jesus' entry in Jerusalem, so that we can understand not only the context and the setting, but now we can begin to understand the parable. Now listen carefully. When Jesus is telling this parable to those people, all they were thinking about is two things. Where is the kingdom going to come? And when is the kingdom going to come? And that's all they cared about, where and when. And that's a preoccupation for our day. I mean, most people buy books about when the kingdom is going to come. We don't want to know how we should live in light of the coming kingdom. So Jesus does something. He corrects their mistakes. He doesn't tell them where. and He doesn't tell them when, but he tells them how. He tells them how in this parable. How are you going to live while you wait for the return of the king? And I cannot tell you enough how crucial that question is to all of us. Now, what we're going to do with just a few minutes we have left, what we're going to do is begin to kind of peel down this parable. So you begin the parable there in verse 12. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Now, at the time of Jesus, in order for a king in the Roman Empire to be named a king in any given region, he would have to make a long journey to Rome. And he would have to be named a king in Rome at that region that he would oversee. And it was a long journey to Rome. And in order for him to get the kingship, Rome would have to confirm and approve it. Now, you don't know this, but I know this. At the time that Jesus is telling this parable, Herod's son, Archelaus, who he had, by the way, he had a wonderful palace in Jericho. Archelaus, upon his father's death, had to go to Rome. In fact, he could be going to Rome exactly when Jesus is telling this parable. And he is going to be granted the kingship to this region that his father confirmed to him. Uh, Herod had three sons. This was one of his sons. This is one of the regions that Herod wanted his son Archelaus to oversee. So Archelaus had to take the journey. And he was so hated by the people. Verse 12b, 13. He was so hated by the people that the people sent a delegation ahead of him to get to Rome before he got to Rome, asking that Rome not give him the kingship because they hated him so much. Now listen carefully. So when Jesus begins to tell the story, we think, okay, that's fine, that's filler. No, it's functional. His audience then can now identify on the same level. But whatever the case is or is not, what matters here is this, verse 12b, the king who is gone is coming back. Verse 13, while he's away, he's appointed 10 servants to manage his affairs. And in order that they could be successful, he's given them each an equal sum of money. It's a minya, 10 minya. How much is a minya? All kinds of people say all kinds of things. They help us sometimes, they don't help us. The point is this, whatever a minion is, they all have an equal share of the minya. He then, the king, goes away. You thinking here like a Christian now? Similar to Christ's ascension. He's gone. He expects his servants to take what they have been given and put it to work while he's away. Question, how long are they to keep at their work? Until they reach a certain stage in life? Until they reach a certain age in life? Then they may stop? No. They are to keep at the work 
until either A, they die, or B, he comes back. What does that mean? Well, I think it means this. It matters how we start, but it sure matters like the Dickens how we finish. Verse 15, he's made king. He sends for his servants he, to whom he gave the money. He asked them, what have you done with the money that I've given you? In fact, he says, I want to find out what you have gained. So listen carefully. With the gift of the gospel that we've been given, there's an expectation from the king who is Christ, and the expectation is one of increase. He wants what he has given us to grow. Now listen carefully, because some of you will need to know this. There's 10 servants, but he only talks about three, telling us what? Telling us, again, the right use of a parable. So if you try to squeeze out what the other six or seven did, that's not going to help us. He's talking about three because he's trying to give a message here. Don't miss the meeting. Don't miss the meeting. Three examples. Example number one, verse 16. The first one comes back and says, Sir, Yaminya has earned 10 more. Wow, 1,000% increase. Verse 17, the king, the king more or less says, Fantastic. Here is your reward. Now stay with me. What is the servant's reward for all his hard work? Verse 17b, more hard work. Ten cities now for you to watch over. Reminding us of what? Well, it reminds us who's king, what it means to be king, who's the servant, and what it means to be a servant. Now, 21st century Christian American, if you need to listen to this, please listen. More work. After working so hard, I would hope he would say, nice job, take it easy, more free time for you. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, job well done with that wee little thing called money management. Verse 17c, in such a very small matter. Your reward now is more work for you, 10 cities to oversee. Example two, more of the same. Verse 18, I've earned five more plus the 10 you gave me. Good. Verse 19, take charge of five cities. Again, more work. Example number three, we'll call him Mr. Unprofitable. Verse 20, here's your minya. I kept it laid in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. You can squeeze blood out of a turnip. So what happens? He loses what he has been given, verse 22. And it goes to our first example who was given 10 cities. Now here's a brief aside. You talk to example one, you talk to example two, and you say, hey, do you want to play? You want to fiddle around? You want to go here? You want to go there? You want to kill some time? All those guys would have to say, maybe not today because I've got a work to do. But if you go to Mr. Unprofitable and say, hey, Mr. Unprofitable, do you have time to play? Do you have time to fiddle around? Do you have time to lay low? Do you have time to go here and there and kill some time? Mr. Unprofitable would say, sure, no problem, because I've buried my 10 minions. So what do we learn? And we'll learn more next time. But the irony here in the, in the paradox in this servant is essentially this. And listen carefully. By attempting to play it safe, by being conservative, he loses the initial amount he had. And trying to play it safe to avoid taking any risk at all, he actually takes the biggest risk of all. His conservatism does him in. Trying to play it safe, he gambles. In the parable, he gambles with his soul. 
by trying to play it safe, to lay low, to be insignificant, to be narrow-minded, to be lazy, to be passive, to be stuck on what he thinks about the king, which is wrong, attempting not to deal with the hard task of investing. Investing is a hard task. You win some, you lose some, you lose some, you win some. You find out what an idiot you are, at least in my case, where you invest. And you're gonna have to go back and do it all over again. By not taking all those risks, he finds that he loses all that he had. So we have a context, we have a setting, we have an application, excuse me, and then we're done. So what is the issue before us this morning? Well, this morning the issue is at least this in light of the parable. What are you doing with the rest of your life? Jesus says, I am the inheritor of the world. I am the king of the world. I'm not going to take my kingdom now the way you think, but I'm a king. I'm going to go on a long journey before I receive the world. Point of fact, I'm going to leave this world for a time. But when I come back, everyone will know. I will be publicly inaugurated. For that reason, in the meantime, since I am king and you are my servants, I'm leaving you with the glad tidings of the gospel so that you who I rule over will fulfill my task, will live out your faith, direct your life by word and deed to the gospel's glorious end so that you may actually see something you may never have seen before. Unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. That is our chief task. And this is how, in the parable, we will be judged. Now, if you're sitting there and you're still listening, you have to say this. This is a demanding task. This is a serious task. Human lives are at stake here. It's a wonderful task because it has to do with life. Life, quoting Pilgrim's Progress. Life, life, eternal life, but not just for us. Listen to words of Richard Baxter from a previous generation of Puritan pastor. We have a greater work to do here than merely securing our own salvation. We are members of the world and the church, and we must labor to do good to many. We are trusted with our master's talent for his service in our place to do our best to propagate his truth and his grace and church and to bring home souls and honor his cause and edify his flock and further the salvation as many as we can. All this is to be done on earth if we will secure the end of all in heaven. And then he says, and this is his pastor's heart coming out, if by faith we did indeed look upon others as within a step of hell, it would more effectually untie our tongues. Let me say that again. If by faith we did indeed look upon others as within a step of hell, it would more effectually untie our tongues. So this is a demanding task. It is a serious task. It is a wonderful task, but it's also unfinished. It is unfinished task. And the question this morning is this, who will bear the torch that flaming? fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. To thee we yield our powers. Who this morning will yield 
their powers? Will I yield my powers? Will you yield your powers? Will you mess up routines for the sake of Jesus Christ? For this is what we know. All our days and all things done in those days are not an end to itself, but are profoundly important means to Christ's appointed end. And that end is to see and work and pray for more occasions where as good servants we can see because we do not play it conservatively. We can see unconverted people become committed followers of Jesus Christ as we wait for his return, as we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is lovely, who is powerful, who will inspect our labor, and who will reward it or will judge it. So please, I ask you for the very last time, for reasons that should now become very, very clear and crucial, Sir, madam, young person, what are you doing with the rest of your life? And maybe this afternoon you can sit down and think about that question before you do whatever you do on the Lord's Day. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and pray. God and Father, we sense and feel the seriousness of your words for this wonderful, crucial, amazing task. We're not the strength behind the task. We understand that, but we are the chosen means of that task. You yourself have given us a message. You yourself has given us that message in the same measure. We pray for Jesus' sake, because of Christ's words this morning, that Christ would be in us, beneath us, and above us. That Christ would be our right and our left hand. That Christ would be with us when we lay down, when we sit down. That Christ would be in the every heart of every man who thinks of us. Christ be in the mouth of every man who ever speaks of us. Christ be in the eyes that see us. And Christ would be in the ears that hear us. We see and feel our weakness to this end. So we need a mighty God to do a mighty act of grace. We pray this now for those of us who say we need it, for Jesus' sake. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you this morning and give you peace. For Jesus' sake, we pray these things. Amen.